we continue this morning to worship out of the Word. And um, we come to the conclusion of our series. Um, we've been doing a series called Misquoted, Twisting the Bible Out of Context. And we've seen that when we take the Bible out of context, we are replacing the real meaning of the text with a different meaning. And that's where false teaching can happen or false thoughts and false beliefs can creep into um, our doctrine. And false beliefs can happen when we take one Bible verse and we turn it into a belief system just around that one Bible verse, especially if we take it out of context. Now, previously, in previous Sundays, in our sermon, Pastor Garrett has reminded us that our theology fuels our doxology. He said what that means is what we believe about God fuels our worship. And worship is not just what we just now are singing. Worship is everything. It's our daily lives. It's when we, we are with people. It's when we are alone. It's what we think about. It's our conduct. That's our worship. So what we believe about God fuels that worship. A.W. Tozer said, what we think about when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why would he say that? It's because our beliefs shapes us. Whatever we believe to be true, that's how we conduct ourselves. Now, I come from Africa. And in Africa, you cannot escape the prosperity gospel. It is everywhere. And today's verse is a favorite for those who preach the prosperity gospel. Today's verse is 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, and it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I'll repeat that. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Okay. So, so what is this? What is the prosperity gospel? If we have to define it, it is a perversion of the gospel, where Jesus is just a means to an end. And that end is God's fulfillment of full blessings of health and wealth and power. And it is available now in this life. But it's only available to those who trust in the faith principles of this prosperity preacher. Because after all, the prosperity preacher is a man of God. That's normally why they call themselves apostles so-and-so or prophets, so-and-so, because they want to establish their authority, right? Now, prosperity preachers, they interpret this verse to be about money. In this verse, Jesus is a means to an end. He's a means to an end, and that end is to become rich. One te teacher's interpretation of this verse is as follows. Listen to what he says. He says, Jesus became poor so that we might become rich. We are not meant to suffer. God has not destined us for anything but riches and health. Suffering, pain, and poverty are not the portion of a true believer because Jesus died to purchase those things for us. 
Well, there's a lot of Christian words in there. But if you think about the conclusion, if you think about the train of thought, you know, this person doesn't know what the gospel is about. So remember what I said earlier. Theology fuels our doxology. What we believe about God fuels our worship. Our beliefs shapes us. So if we misinterpret this verse like they do, how will it shape you? Listen to what he said. God has not destined us for anything but riches and wealth. Jesus died to purchase those things for us. If we believe that, then we don't even understand the gospel. Then we have perverted the gospel. There's nothing wrong with being rich, of course, because it's a blessing from God, but that is not the gospel. The bad news is that this verse does not promise us that we will be rich. The good news is that it promises us so much more. Let's look at this verse in context. That's what Pastor Gareth has been telling us. Always read the Bible in context. So if you'll please stand with me as we read today's passage. It's from 2 Corinthians 8. And we're going to read from verse 1 to 15. And the theme of this whole context, the, the theme of the chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, is about Christian giving. Not about Christian getting. You'll even see the heading of chapter 8 says, Encouragement to give generously. Okay, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1 to 15. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, the abundance of joy and the extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for a favor of taking part in relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all eagerness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now, finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in deserving it may be matched by you, completing it out what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness, as it is written, whoever gathered 
much had nothing left over, and either gathered little had no lack. Thank you. You may be seated. So what's going on here? Paul has written a letter, to, a letter to the Corinthian church. And this is his second letter to the Corinthian church. And he is reminding them that they started to collect money for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And he's encouraging them to complete that. In this chapter, verses, eight, um, verses 1 to 8, he points out the example of the Macedonian churches who gave generously and sacrificially despite their extreme poverty. Although the Macedonian Christians didn't have much to give, they really wanted to give. They saw it as a privilege to give. They are poor, but Paul says in verse 2 that they have a wealth of generosity. And then we get to the misquoted verse. It's tucked away in this very practical section about giving. Verse 9 is tucked away, but it is of a profound theological truth. This verse is actually a gem of incalculable value. This verse is amazing. The wonder of this verse is captivating. We can spend the rest of our days thinking of the, the 31 words of this verse, and, and we would not fully understand the beautiful truth that it contains. 31 words, not complicated, it's not confusing, the verse is plain, but it is full of the meaning of truth. This verse describes Jesus Christ's descent from riches to poverty so that believers can ascend from poverty to riches. Jesus, who is worthy, became poor to make us, who are unworthy, rich. Okay, this verse can be divided up into three sections. The riches of Christ, the poverty of Christ, and the gift of Christ. We'll start with the riches of Christ. That though he was rich, it says, now as, as God, Jesus owns everything in heaven and on earth. Let's go through a few verses. Exodus 19.5 Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, says God. Deuteronomy 10.14 Behold, the Lord your God, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth and all that is in it. Job 41.11, God says, Who was first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Psalm 50.12, If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. 1 Corinthians 10.26, For the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. It's clear. Everything belongs to God. The heaven, the earth, and all who dwells therein. That includes us. We belong to God. 
whether we are Christian or atheist, we all belong to God. We don't have to believe in God to belong to Him. He created us. We are created beings. Right, so God owns everything in heaven and on earth. But it's not about the riches that Paul is talking about. It's not about material things, things that we can touch and feel. No. The riches that Paul is thinking of is about those of Christ's supernatural glory, who he is, not what he owns. His position as the Son of God, his eternal attributes, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus Christ is God. The eternity, the eternality of Jesus Christ is the most important truth about Jesus. It's actually the most important truth about the gospel because if he is not eternal, he must have had a beginning. If he had a beginning, he must have been created. No, the eternality of Christ offers a clear powerful and irrefutable proof that he is God because only God is eternal. The Bible teaches that Jesus is eternal. Let's look at a few verses quickly. In the Old Testament, in the prophecy that predicted his birthplace, Micah says in Micah 5.2, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth me, for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming is from old, from ancient days. The Messiah is from ancient days. Then Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Then, of course, John, the Gospel of John opened in these wonderful words. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ existed from all eternity because when the universe was created and time began, He already existed. What about Jesus? What did He say about His eternity, et eternality? Jesus himself declared his eternal existence to the unbelieving Jews. In John 8, 58, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. If he said I was, he would have indicated he's old. But he says I am, just as God identified himself to Moses in the burning bush, indicating that he's got the power of being from within himself, I am doesn't need anything from the outside to live or to, have, to be a being. And then in Jesus' high priestly prayer, just before he was crucified, in John 17, 5, he prayed, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had before the world was. Can you see that? As the eternal second person of the Trinity, Jesus is as rich as God the Father. We've got this beautiful piece which we're going to share in the slides that you can read with me. 
the 19th century theologian Charles Hodge wrote this about Jesus. All divine names and titles are applied to him. He is called God, the Almighty God, the Great God, God all over, Jehovah, Lord, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. All divine attributes are ascribed to him. He is declared to be omnipresent, omniscient, almighty, immutable, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is set forth as the creator and upholder and the ruler of the universe. All things are created by him and for him, and by him all things consist. He is the object of worship to all intelligent creatures, even the highest. All the angels are commanded to prostrate themselves before him. He is the object of all religious sentiments. To him, men and angels are responsible for their character and their conduct. He required that men should honor him as they honored the Father, that they should exercise the same faith in him that they do to God. He declared that he and the Father are one, that those who have seen him have also seen the Father also. He calls all men unto him, promises to forgive their sins, to send the Holy Spirit, to give them rest and peace, to raise them up on the last day, to give them eternal life. God is not more and cannot promise more and will do more than Christ is said to be, to promise and to do. He has therefore been the Christian's God from the beginning, in all ages and in all places. Amen. That is the riches of Christ. He is God himself. That's far more than money, right? Let me get to the second part of the verse. The poverty of Christ. For your sake, he became poor. Okay, so though Jesus possessed all the riches of God from all eternity, for sinners' sake, he became poor. Some, some people have understood that to mean that when he was on earth, he did not have a lot of money. When he was on earth, his economic status, he wasn't a king, he wasn't, he wasn't rich. But this verse is not a commentary on Jesus' economic status or his material circumstances in this life. Read with me Philippians 2. Let's go to Philippians 2. It wonderfully describes how the rich God who owns everything and who is eternal became poor. Philippians 2, verse 6 to 11. This explains how Christ has lowered himself. Verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has might highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Verse 7, he emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. The Lord Jesus Christ became poor in his incarnation when he was born of a woman, Galatians 4.4, 4, in the like, likeness of sinful flesh, Romans 8.3, a descendant of David according to the flesh, Romans 1.3, and made for a little while lower than the angels, Hebrews 2. Remember in John 17.5, Jesus stated that he left heaven's glory. So the poverty of Christ that Paul is writing about here is the incarnation of Christ. There's a doctrine, the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. What does it mean? It means that God became flesh, that God assumed human nature and became a man in the form of Jesus. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the second person of the Trinity, Jesus was truly God and truly man. That God became flesh is what Paul is thinking of when he, when he writes, Christ became poor. Even though he existed in the form of God for all eternity, possessing all the riches of God, Jesus emptied himself, becoming poor by being born a man. He suffered human weaknesses and limitations. Remember, he became hungry, as we saw in Matthew. He became thirsty, as we see in John 4. He became tired, as we see in Mark 4. And he was tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus left the glory he had in heaven to come to earth, the earth that he created. He stepped into time. He became a human. He was born from a mother, a human that he created. Augustine, St. Augustine of Hippo also had a very nice section that I want to read out, and it's also on the slides. It's about the incarnation of Jesus and what it means. Let's read together. So he stepped into time to be born for us. The maker of man became man. That he, ruler of the stars, might be nourished by the breast. That he, the, the bread, might be hungry. That he, the fountain, might thirst. That he, the light, might sleep. That he, the way, might be wearied by the journey. That he, the truth, might be accused by false witnesses. That he, the judge of the living and the dead, might be brought into trial by a human judge, that he, justice, might be condemned by the unjust, that he, discipline, might be scourged with whips, that he, the foundation, might be suspended on a cross, that he, courage, might be weakened, that he, security, might be wounded, and that he, life, might die. That is how Christ became poor. And he did, didn't just become poor, he said, for your sake he became poor. And that's how we get to the third part, so that we be, might become rich. It's 
the gift of Christ so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The purpose of Jesus Christ becoming man was that poor sinners might become rich. He did not make them materially rich, but he gave them the blessings of salvation. What are the blessings of salvation? Peace with God, access to God, hope in God. What do we get when we, when we get salvation? Oh, we gain forgiveness, we gain joy, we gain peace, eternal life, we gain light, we gain glory, we gain fellowship with God, and we gain fellowship as part of the body of Christ, the church. We have a good shepherd. We even have a new identity. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Peter, in 1 Peter 1.4, describes how we become rich. He says, We have got an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. And it is reserved in heaven for believers. When we were sinners, we were dead in our sin. But through salvation, we are made heirs. We can share in Jesus' riches. Let's look at a few verses again. Romans 8.17 Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. 1 John 3, 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been known to us, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him. Ephesians 2, verse 6 to 8. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages we might show the incomparable riches of His grace, expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. This is not from yourself. It is a gift of God. That is the gift of Christ. And this is not the first time that Paul has told the Corinthians about their riches in Christ. We see in 1 Corinthians 4, or 1 Corinthians 1, verse 4 and 5, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched by Him. And then again in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 22 and 23, He says, All things are yours, whether Apollos or Paul or Cephas or this world, all life, all death, all the present, all the future, all are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is God. We have been made rich because we have been, Ephesians 1.3, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Much more than money, we have been blessed and we don't even deserve it. Just, just a reminder, in this context, it was the context of Paul wrote chapter 8 and 9 to motivate the Corinthians to give freely, to give sacrificially, 
and to give generously to others. What about our giving? How can we be unwilling to meet the needs of others? Let's remind ourselves, James wrote in James 2, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body, then what use is it? can't just say a blessing on someone if you know they are hungry. The Apostle John added in 1 John 3:17, Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? As Christians, we are called to give generously and with thankful hearts because everything we have belongs to God and comes from God. Pastor Gareth shared with me this amazing story. Dr. Roy L. Lauren, he wrote in a book, and um, a businessman went to Korea, and he was walking with his guide, and he saw a strange sight, and he took a photo of this. What he saw was an elderly man pushing a plow in a field, and a younger man pulling the plow. And he observed to his guide, he said, wow, these people must be so poor. And the guy said, well, there's a story behind this. They are Christians, and their church, they were building a church, and they asked the congregation to contribute to this church. And, um, and these, this father and son said, well, they have nothing, until they realized, well, they have an ox, their only ox. They had the ox slaughtered, they sold the meat in the marketplace, and they, all the proceeds went to the building of this church. And, and the businessman said to, the, said to his guy, he said, wow, what a sacrifice. And the guy said, well, it's a sacrifice, yes, but they counted themselves fortunate because they had something to give. What a story. When I read this story, I thought, I have never had to give more than what I can or, or more than I want. You know, I've, I've never paid such a price as this father and son did, as this family did. And I pray that, that God will bless this family, and I pray that God will inspire us to give generously and with glad hearts. Okay, to conclude, in this series, misquoted, twisting the Bible out of context, we have seen that the Word of God should be read in the context that the author intended. Otherwise, we can end up with uh, beliefs that are unbiblical and not honoring to God. Today, we looked at a verse of profound theological truth. And the, and the verse was tucked away in the section of giving. And how do we respond? How do we respond to this profound truth that Jesus the second person of the Trinity, an almighty God and heavenly Father, that God entered humanity to save unworthy sinners, that God so rich should be made so poor. How do we respond to the fact that we are elevated, we have the blessings of salvation, we have peace with God, we have access to God and we have hope 
in God? How do we respond knowing that we share in the eternal heavenly wealth of Jesus? Let this truth never cease to astonish us. Let's be grateful knowing that we have received salvation. It's a precious gift and we have received it. All the glory to God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have made known to us the things of the kingdom today. Loving Lord, our heavenly God, how great is your grace and love towards us that you would strip yourself of all you had and all you were to live as a human so that we could be saved from our sins and inherit the riches of eternal life. Or the verse says, for our sake you became poor. We can only respond with joy and thanksgiving, with humbleness, with gratitude. Please show us how to apply what we have learned in this service in our daily lives and help us to make wise choices throughout the week for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.